I'm Larry Hurtado. I'm head of the School of Divinity and a member of the Giffords Committee. And it's my pleasure to uh, introduce our Gifford lecturer this evening. Patricia Churchland's Gifford lecture will be entitled Morality and the Mammalian Brain. It's a special pleasure to uh, be able to introduce her this evening. Uh, many years ago, in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, we were on staff together at the University of Manitoba. And uh, she and her husband moved to San Diego in the mid-80s, and then we moved here in the mid-90s. And so it's nice to connect up again. Welcome, a personal welcome to, uh, to Edinburgh. Patricia Smith Churchland is professor of philosophy in the University of California, San Diego, and an adjunct professor at the Salk Institute. Her research focuses on the interface between neuroscience and philosophy. She explores the impact of scientific developments on our understanding of consciousness, the self, free will, decision-making, ethics, learning, and religion. She is the author of the groundbreaking book, Neurophilosophy, from 1986, co-author with T.J. Sajnowski of The Computational Brain, 1992, co-author with Paul Churchland of On the Contrary, 1998, and her book, Brainwise, was published in 2002 by MIT Press. Her current work focuses on morality and the social brain. She has been president of the American Philosophical Association and the Society for Philosophy and Psychology. She won the MacArthur Prize in 1991 and the Rossi Prize in 1998. The lecture this evening will be recorded and it will be available for viewing online through the university's Gifford website. I now have the pleasure of putting you in the hands of Professor Churchland. Thank you very much, Larry, for your kind introduction. Um, may I say that it's uh, a great pleasure and indeed a great honor to be giving the Gifford Lectures here in Edinburgh. I um, discovered that William James gave the first Gifford Lecture, and then I felt uh, truly humbled. So today I want to talk about morality and the mammalian brain uh, in particular, but of course it has to do with sociality that I am most interested. Now, let's see. There we go. So the opening question for me has been this. What can science teach us about the nature of morality, about its platform and where it comes from? There are many sciences that can contribute to this endeavor, including, of course, genetics and evolutionary biology, but also experimental psychology, ethology, certainly anthropology, and neuroscience, and most particularly, it turns out, neuroendocrinology. And I'll have the most to say uh, about the latter two. I'm going to begin by giving you an overview of what my main hypothesis is, and then in the talk that follows, I'm going to try to develop it by providing arguments, but in particular, by providing uh, a framework of data in which I can embed the story. So the hypothesis is that sociability in all animals is a basic value, and in mammals, it's a basic social value and that this is entirely consistent with natural selection. 
For mammals, but perhaps not, we don't know really, uh, for insects, the hub of the story for sociality has to do with a very simple peptide, oxytocin. It is not the only thing that's involved. There are many other neurochemicals that play a very important role, but oxytocin is at the center. It's augmented by learning via the reward system, by uh, reward and punishment, and of course the greater capacity for learning than the more complex the skills involved in sociality. And it is elaborated in mammals with the expansion of the prefrontal structures, which allow in ways that we don't entirely understand uh, for regulation of uh, decision making. Many of the ideas that I will talk about did, I think, uh, have a clear articulation, if not the scientific platform, uh, in the work of David Hume. Simon Blackburn, in his book, uh, How to Read Hume, sums up Hume's approach by saying that humans are partly selfish, which is indeed true, partly sympathetic in that we care for others, able to take other points of view, meaning that we can understand what others think or what they're likely to do, what their intentions are, what their goals are, and able to evolve institutions, institutions that structure the social organization and the social practices uh, of a group. This is also reflected, I think, in the later thoughts of Darwin, who said that our moral sense or conscience depends on our social instincts, something that Hume called uh, the moral sentiment, on habits that are acquired as the animal is reared in a social context, and on reason, or as we might now say, on problem solving and finding ways of handling social difficulties such as conflict resolution or the distribution of resources or how to handle group defense. The more specific hypothesis, and this is where the neuroendocrinological part of the story comes in, is that attachment and bonding are the platform for moral values. And in turn, that their origin has to do with the particular style of reproduction in mammals. Attachment and trust are the dispositions that contour the social problem space, that give it a shape such that certain solutions are stable and workable and agreed upon and other solutions uh, are not. They also constitute the motivation to find solutions to group problems. Culture, of course, is an essential part of the story of morality and of sociality more general. But that isn't a part of the story that I want to address here, partly because I don't know enough, uh, but also because there are others, knowing much more than I do, have written really very extensively on the cultural part uh, of the story. So in a way, it's not that I think that the cultural part of the story is unimportant. It's just that I want to address something that's slightly more basic, and that has to do with the neurobiological platform. By way of preliminary, I think it's sometimes useful to remind ourselves of a particular discovery within psychology that gives us a sort of conceptual take on certain of the problems that we address 
in the context of understanding the nature of morality. The discovery really was made first by Eleanor Roche, but I think was anticipated by other people. The basic idea is that our workaday, everyday concepts have an organization that you can describe as a radial structure, by which is meant that there are certain concepts at the center that are considered prototypical. That, as in this case, for example, everyone thinks that uh, a carrot is a vegetable. So that if you ask a room of undergraduates, name the first vegetable that comes to your mind, mostly they say carrot. Apart from the prototypical cases and extending outwards by similarity relations so that these are more similar to that than to things out here, uh, there is a kind of similarity space that extends out to a kind of fuzzy boundary. And at the boundary, there may, of course, be no agreement about what constitutes a vegetable. So as Roche pointed out, uh, radishes are not prototypical vegetables, but many people think of them as vegetables. Whereas once you get to mushrooms, they're considered part of the boundary. And when you get to parsley, then there really is no disagreement about whether or not they are vegetables. And in many workaday, everyday concepts, this is the way the categories appear to be structured. Now, of course, there is cultural variability in what constitutes the prototype. And in this particular slide, we can see that if you are an Inuit living in the north, that will be your prototypical house, whereas maybe in Edinburgh, something like that will be a prototypical house. Uh, in, the, in the Midwest for many years, that was a prototypical house. Um, but what we do know is that in general, and given cultural relativity, prototypes constitute the sort of uh, center of gravity of categories. And part of the reason that this turns out to be important is that it detaches us from this conviction that many philosophers have had that categories must be defined in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, or at least that there are certain kinds of logical and conceptual necessities uh, about categories. And it may be that we need to rethink that in the context of understanding um, the nature of categories, as most of them are in, in, uh, in actual practice. Now, Mark Johnson made the observation um, in the 1990s that, in fact, many social categories are radial in this very way as well, that uh, they are learned by prototypical examples, and that if you want to say what it is to be a friend, a hard and fast definition is unlikely, but giving examples and prototypes, drawing on conventional stories, drawing on conventional practices uh, is more typical. And so that seems to be true of all of these kinds of categories. And I think it is quite true uh, that that's the way they are learned. And he made the, uh, the argument then, and I think that he's probably right about this, that by and large, those two are radial categories with central prototypes similarity relations to those further out, and fuzzy boundaries. Now, having sort of put that then in as a background, it will color the way I think about 
the moral categories that we use and how it is that when we're trying to understand the neurobiological basis of morality, we might not need to be looking for uh, hard and fast definitions or necessary and sufficient conditions. Now I want to switch to the neurobiological part of the account. So the question that you might ask is, how is it that anyone cares for others? For friends, for family, for strangers in some instances. But the deeper question may be, where does value of any kind come from? How is it possible for neurons to value something? Or what is it for a neural network to have activity <clears throat> such that, I hope I don't lose my voice, <clears throat> such that as a result of that activity, uh, the organism values something? And the observation made by Jacques Panksepp and later, I think, by Antonio Damasio <clears throat> is that all organisms are structured in their nervous system to take care of those things that matter to their survival. Food, temperature, water, and also, of course, to take care of reproduction. And the brain stem and limbic system are organized in such a way that animals are motivated when they feel the pain of hunger or the very different pain of thirst or the very different pain of lust uh, to respond in a very particular kind of way with a very particular kind of behavior. And it's very easy for all of us to see how uh, natural selection would select for those nervous systems that manage self-care and would select against those uh, that don't care, uh, that, that uh, engage in self-neglect. And in this context, it's useful to remember that the cortex, of course, in, in mammals may be important, but that even in mammals, but certainly also in non-mammals, the subcortical structures play an absolutely critical role. The basal ganglia, the amygdala, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the periaqueductal gray, and so forth. That these are not kind of incidental things holding up the cortex, although sometimes in neuroscience, those of us who are infatuated with the cortex uh, are sometimes inclined to think so. This is a um, diagram from uh, Joseph Parvizzi, and he wanted to emphasize the importance of subcortical structures, and so you'll notice he made the cortical structures rather uh, small and uninteresting. Now, the question then is, okay, so we can understand how it can be that an animal's nervous system sees to the values of well-being and survival. The basics of that, at least, can be well understood. The question is, how is it then that you can change the nervous system so that it cares not just about its own self, but about others. Paul McLean, who was a, a neurologist at the uh, National Institutes of Health, said that when, one of the things that we need to look at is what's new with mammals, with mammalian behavior. And it's nursing and parental care the beginnings of taking care of others, 
of expanding those values of well-being and survival beyond the ambit of one's own homeostasis to include the offspring. Playful behavior, about which we can say a little bit perhaps in discussion. Separation vocalization. And that matters because it affects the pain system. And finally, mate attachment. And so McLean uh, rather uh, charmingly said, the history of the evolution of mammals is the history of the development of a family way of life. So with mammals then, the, the domain of me gets expanded to me and mine. At least let's talk about early mammals. Uh, rodents, for example, that care particularly uh, about their own offspring. Now, it seems that uh, the main changes in the mammalian brain that have to do with sociality, of course, there are many changes in the mammalian brain, concern the hormones that are released that changed the female brain so that when oxytocin is released, she goes into nurturing behavior and into nesting behavior. One of the things that happens is that when there is separation of the infant from the mother, the mother feels pain, especially when there are distress calls. Moreover, the infant feels pain when it is separated from the mother, and it makes distress calls. And when they're brought together again, then there is uh, a release of oxytocin, and there is also probably a release of the endogenous opiates so that the animals feel good and they feel that things are right and that things are well. So the feeling of the need to be with and to belong and to be close to what you love has got its origin in this very basic but absolutely essential circuitry for the evolution of the mammalian brain. And of course, this is true uh, of humans too. And in lactation, for example, oxytocin is essential for the ejection of milk. But lact uh, during lactation, oxytocin is released in the brain of both the mother and the child. And many experiments have been done, uh, particularly on rats, where the rats are properly fed and uh, watered and kept warm but don't receive that kind of nurturing, and it has a very significant effect on their subsequent behavior. And that's just a very simple uh, diagram of oxytocin, believed to be a very, very ancient molecule containing only nine amino acids. Uh, certainly, it is found in um, reptiles. It's found, versions of it are found in insects where it mainly has to do with the regulation of, uh, of water and mineral content uh, in the body fluids. And it's not known exactly why oxytocin came to serve the function that it does in the mammalian brain, but it presume, is presumed that it had something to do with the fact that in humans, uh, the placenta needs water, and you need water also uh, for milk. But that's a story that is, is really not well known. So 
from the very earliest development of mammals, it looks like the social urges involve pleasure and pain in, caused by varying kinds of social interactions. So that there is pleasure in giving food to offspring and pain if, if there is separation. Pleasure in grooming and being groomed. And it turns out, for example, in mice, that it's extremely important to be groomed and licked and uh, the proper development of both the brain and the genitalia depend on this licking and grooming in the very early stages. Um, Eisenberger and Lieberman uh, did some uh, functional MR work on humans to determine what the pathways were that involved uh, social pain, especially during separation or during exclusion or being shunned. And roughly, this diagram is not terribly uh, good, but basically what it shows you is that the same pathways that are used for physical pain through the thalamus into the anterior cingulate and, and into the uh, anterior insula are also involved in uh, social pain. Social pain, of course, is somewhat different, so that when the mother feels awful when the infant is cut or burned on the foot, let us say, it's not that she feels a cut or a burn on her foot, but she does have that sense of awfulness uh, that we are all very familiar with. Similarly, uh, pleasure seems to involve many of the same structures, the ventromedial uh, prefrontal cortex, and uh, the ventral tegmental area, the amygdala, uh, and so forth. That they, it looks like those fundamental areas involving physical pleasure and physical pain that were there in pre-mammalian animals were changed, extended, and adapted. It wasn't that a whole new thing came into being, a whole new social pathway uh, came into being. So, that very briefly, and, and, and I apologize very simply, uh, gives the background for the major shift from self-caring to caring for others. And then the question is, well, that, if that gives us a story of how you care for offspring, why do we care for anything other than offspring? After all, rats, for example, a mother rat uh, cares for her offspring, but when they're gone, uh, she doesn't worry too much anymore. And we're not like that. We also care for mates. And humans often show very strong mate preference. About 3% of mammals, not a lot, do show strong mate preference. Marmosets do, for example. Beavers do. And so do prairie voles. So prairie voles, after the first mating of the male and female, tend to hang out together for life. They rear. Uh, many, uh, many litters of pups. The male will take care of the pups and in a very active way, uh, both in terms of finding food for them and huddling over them and defending them. He will also guard the nest. Now, a very similar species of vole is the montane vole, or also the meadow vole. Don't show those kinds of behaviors. The male and female mate, then they go their merry ways. The female raises the pups, and the male takes no part in it. And when Sue Carter at Chicago saw these differences, 
in these very, very similar animals, the question was, what's the difference in the brain? There must be a difference in the brain. And so she went to work on the question. Oh, this is a, a, a male prairie vole uh, guarding, guarding the nest against uh, an intruder. So she went to work on it with a number of people, including Larry Young and Tom Insel and others. But the basic finding turned out to be rather simple and rather surprising. So in this slide, what I'm going to show you are species difference in the receptors for oxytocin and its sibling peptide, vasopressin. Vasopressin is just like oxytocin, uh, with the exception of changes in two positions of amino acids. The belief is that they have a common ancestor and then diverged. Vasopressin is more common in males and females, and oxytocin uh, is more, uh, there is more of it in uh, females than in males. What you're looking at is a section this way through a male montane vole and a male prairie vole. And uh, the dark areas represent staining for receptors for the peptide. So what, uh, in this case, you can see a large area that is stained, and that's the nucleus accumbens. And what that shows you is that the density of receptors for oxytocin is significantly greater in the prairie vole than in the montane vole. Nowhere else. I mean, they, both animals have oxytocin and oxytocin receptors. The only thing that changes is the density of receptors for oxytocin in one particular area. Now, for vasopressin, there is also a difference. And again, it's one particular area, the ventral pallidum, right there. And you don't see that receptor density in um, montane voles. Now, then people began to do the manipulations that would uh, address whether this was significant by blocking the receptors. They developed also mouse models, uh, genetic mouse models. And the basic finding seems to have held up that um, if you block the receptors, for example, in the, in the male prairie vole, they don't show mate attachment. So it looks like a fairly small change to this large change in the mammalian brain will also give you mate attachment. Now, as a result of these findings, of course, many people got very, very interested in oxytocin and what it does and how it might change our behavior and, of course, what it does in humans. What's our story? And the, the rodent models are particularly helpful here, but one of the, some of the things that they found I've listed here, that when oxytocin levels increase, there is a decrease in defensive postures. So someone new comes in, the animals are ready and alert. With oxytocin, they relax. The defensive postures decrease. There's an increase in the level of trust in allowing others to come close, to be groomed, and so forth. The autonomic arousal also decreases, and we now know that's because 
There are neuronal projections from the hypothalamus directly to the brainstem and back, and that they interact to decrease the level of alertness and arousal. And that in general, as Sue Carter puts it, oxytocin functions as a kind of safety signal. So on this picture then, it looks like self-care extends to infant care, which extends to kin care. That the pain system extends to the social domain, and that the expansion of the forebrain, about which I've said very little so far, extends to the anticipation of events. So that if anticipation and prediction is a very important function for nervous systems, because we want to be able to avoid trouble or to take advantage of opportunities, we need in a social context to be able to anticipate not just physical events, but the social activities of others. And so there may be, even early in, um, in mammalian evolution, the anticipation of simple kinds of events, of what, the, what our neighbor's goals are or intentions are, even though that may not be represented to the animal in quite that sort of vocabulary. And so this anticipation, as it gets increasingly complex, can allow for the development of a theory of mind, of a theory of mind that attributes goals and intentions, but perhaps also points of view, beliefs, knowledge, temperamental factors, grandpa's always grouchy, or what have you, uh, so that uh, animals know what to expect uh, from a particular social context. So to, to in, a, in a very rough way, diagram the relationship now is that with particular kinds of evolutionary developments given certain ecological conditions. It may have been a good idea for animals to live not just in tiny groups, but in large groups. And in fact, it's interesting that the prairie voles do live in quite large groups. Um, they, don't, they aren't tightly bonded to their group. They're tightly bonded to the family. And there's also alloparenting, interestingly, in prairie voles on the part of the siblings, they help take care of the babies. So that you can, depending on the ecology and what, so to speak, is in the interest of the animals, get a much larger expansion of caring to friends, affiliates, uh, and others. And so if the ecological conditions, of course, vary enormously. In wolves, there is just one breeding pair, and the non-breeding uh, adults help feed the pups of the one breeding pair. That's very different from, say, orcas or dolphins. Um, it's very different from baboons, where they all breed. Marmosets uh, are uh, very strong pair bonders, bond for life. There's alloparenting on the part of the siblings. Um, and so, but it's going to reflect a lot of uh, features in the ecology of their particular lineage. Meerkats um, have a very different sort of social life than uh, marmosets. And here is a male meerkat doing his turn as a sentry. The males take turns, and he's watching 
for activity, for predators, so that the young can come out of the burrows. This is in the Kalahari Desert, as I'm sure you mostly know. Uh, so that the young can come out of their burrows and play and exercise, and uh, others can go and forage. Now, sociality probably varies quite a lot as a function of resources. And I was first really alerted to this um, by uh, a man who studied bears very uh, casually. He's not a, not a scientist. His name is uh, Kilstrom. In, in New Hampshire. And I happened to meet him, and, and I thought I, I'd grown up in the bush. I thought I knew something about bears. I said, well, isn't it interesting that bears are not very social? And he said, well, it depends. They can be very social if the resources are available. They will come together and hang out together and leave marks for one another and so forth. Now, in this slide, it kind of makes the same point, because famously, orangs are loners. They come together only to mate, the males and females, although, of course, the females take care of the young un until they are independent. But in this slide, of course, the orang is well-provisioned, and he and the dog have become extremely chummy. And notice that the behaviors are very prototypically social. Puts his arm around him. Uh, they're making kind of similar, similar faces there. And this looks very chummy to me. Um, it's not known, of course, in Borneo whether if the orangs were well provisioned that we would see a change in behavior, uh, but we might well. So that's just by way of saying that although it has sometimes been thought that humans alone show morality, it might be useful to think that social animals all have a kind of level of morality because, of course, we do see the enforcement of social practices in all social animals, baboons, chimpanzees, and so forth. It might be better to think that marmosets have marmoset morality and humans have human morality and perhaps the kind of social practices that we find particularly stable or appealing uh, have to do with our social ecology uh, mainly. Now, so far I've been talking about the nice part of social behavior. <clears throat> but in humans, as in chimpanzees and bonobos, there is a dark side. We know about the chimpanzees because Richard Wrangham um, did a study, and this has been since followed by many others, where what happened was the original group of chimpanzees got to be too large, and so it separated. So actually, there, there were many kin in both groups. Eventually, both groups prospered and did quite well, but their territory was adjacent. Wrangham discovered that of an evening, the male chimps in one of the troops would kind of quietly steal away from the others, and in this very different mode of locomotion, would kind of creep off to the border between there and the other territory. If they found a chimpanzee in that other territory, they would uh, beat it. And often, they wouldn't actually kill it, but they would do everything but. 
and they would rip uh, and bite and tear, rip off the testicles if it was a male, and in general acted not the way they do if they're in a predatorial mode with, say, a monkey, where clearly they're interested in food. They were killing. And they did this over a period of time until they essentially wiped out uh, the other group. Now, Sam Bowles, who is um, an evolutionary theorist at Santa Fe, uh, was impressed with that story because there do seem to be something roughly analogous in the behavior of, of humans. And he, one of the things he suggested uh, was the following, that there can, of course, be very tight bonds within a group, a human group. And maybe part of the reason um, that we see a sharing or a distribution of resources of the kind that is more or less fair in humans comes about in the following way. If one group feels the need to attack the other, that's a very risky business, especially, I mean, it's usually the males that are involved. And so in order to reward them for undertaking this, they need to get a share of the spoils. And perhaps also they need to be assured that, that uh, their women will not uh, be taken by the head man. So his idea then is that in-group bonding and out-group hostility co-evolved. And that out-group hostility may have been an absolutely crucial part of hominin behavior, and in particular of human behavior, uh, maybe since humans appeared on the planet roughly 300,000 years ago. Now, I want to say a little bit about uh, social problem solving because although all mammals have prefrontal cortex, and I mean cortex in a way that uh, reptiles don't, that is, they have the six-plus layer structure with a very highly organized pattern of uh, where particular neurons are and to whom they connect. The prefrontal structure in rodents is relatively small, but in primates and in large brain mammals in general, it's really quite large. And in humans, it's particularly large. It's thought that prefrontal structures are particularly important in learning uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of which is that it's the prefrontal structures that develop latest, and they myelinate the latest. So even into uh, late uh, adolescence, there is still development and myelination of prefrontal structures. Of course, there's change all over the brain, uh, particularly uh, in parts that Richard Morris studies uh, after that. But the prefrontal structures do seem to play uh, a particularly important role in what's called executive function, where you can learn to defer gratification, a small reward now for a large reward later. You can make more <coughs> ad advanced plans and calculations. You can repress desires in a social context, so much so that um, the habits you have for repressing those desires may take care of everything without even your conscious awareness. 
They probably are important in ways that we don't really understand at this point for acquiring social skills, for learning how to navigate through the great complexity uh, of our social world and being able to anticipate how people will react, what they will think, what they will do. And of course, uh, a spectacular example of all this, it can be read every morning in, in the newspaper as the jockeying goes on uh, for who will lead the next uh, government in this country. It's amazing to me. Uh, it's such a wonderful example of, of the complexity of, of uh, human prediction of other social behavior. A particularly important thing for, for mammals also <clears throat> is um, to keep track of the reputation of others, of how to know how others are likely to behave in this circumstance, it helps enormously to know how they behaved in other similar circumstances. As well, it's important to keep track of your own reputation. And clearly, one's own reputation is of enormous value in a social context. And it's of value because much of the prosperity for oneself and others uh, in your family or in your, uh, of your offspring depends on the interactions and interrelationships with others. And so it's important to see to one's own reputation given that it is a value and not to let that value be tarnished. And it's, it's arguable that some of the uh, development of short-term memory or intermediate-term memory and long-term memory serve this function of keeping track of not only one's own reputation, but where things happened and when and to whom, so it must be indexed in space and time. I might not care so much about certain physical events being indexed in space and time, but I sure am going to care about in uh, events in my own life as they uh, involved interaction with others. Now, <clears throat> humans, of course, um, famously engage in cooperative behavior with many, many people. And in a modern society where uh, there, there are many of us and we interact on a daily basis, with people who are totally strangers, it's an interesting question how that can uh, have come to be. Hume, I think, really did anticipate this in his understanding of the importance of social institutions and the evolution of social institutions, the modification and so forth, but also the capacity of institutions to enforce trust. So that if I am interacting with an individual who is a stranger to me in, let us say, a trade context, then if there is an institution that I can trust because I know it will enforce the agreement between me and others, then that facilitates uh, the social interactions. It facilitates the, uh, the complexity of such things as, as trade and commerce. Joseph Heinrich recently asked this question. 
Um, might it be the case that trust uh, does depend in the way that uh, I just outlined on, in fact, having interactions with those that you don't know? So he undertook this heroic experiment where he tested many people in, from many groups in South America and Africa and elsewhere. And the, the way the test worked uh, was this, that he would give them one of these neuroeconomic games where you actually, uh, which actually involves real money and giving money to an investor where the investor may or may not uh, return the money. And these are actually a very reliable index of level of trust. They're imperfect in many ways, and they don't really reflect uh, the nature of commerce in real life, but they do index a degree of trust and a degree of trust that's variable. So his question was, if a group has what he calls high market integration, meaning that quite a lot of their food comes from trade with this group and that group and some other group. Will you see a difference in the level of trust in one of these neuroeconomic games? The contrast, of course, will be a group that are fairly isolated, that are hunters and gatherers, and really don't depend on others uh, for their food. And the basic answer was that you do see greater trust with higher levels of market integration that uh, once you, it, it's as though the brain says, you know, once I understand that there are benefits to be had by interacting with this stranger, and there is a reliably trustworthy kind of institution to enforce that, then hey, why not? And I never have the slightest difficulty when I get into a cab uh, about telling the cabbie where I want to go. I don't worry that you know he's actually going to take me into a back alley and rob me. Uh, and that's because of the trust institutions interleaved and interconnected in these wonderfully rich ways that they are uh, that allow for that. Now, I should just mention um, something else about oxytocin in human studies. I've indicated that there are these games that are highly structured where, where the results are meaningful because they're very measurable. And so one question that Ernst Fair and Zurich asked was, if you give players of a game one of these trusting games, oxytocin, will it change their trusting behavior? Will their trust be affected at all? And the way he did it was to spray it intranasally. And that was a good idea because a sort of direct route uh, into the subcortical structures is, is through the uh, olfactory, lobe, uh, olfactory bulb. So, the basic answer is that it does make a difference. That the group that got uh, oxytocin intranasally showed significantly, but not overwhelmingly, but they did show a significantly higher level of trust uh, than those who did not. Now, um, usually at this point, people start thinking, oh, yes, now couldn't we just you know, sort of spray that around the Houses of Parliament? I mean, wouldn't that be a great thing? Um, First of all, uh, let me say two things. One is it has a very short half-life, so you have to do these experiments very fast. So that probably wouldn't work. Um, 
But the second thing is oxytocin is very, very potent. It's a hormone. So Sue Carter, after uh, one of these occasions when somebody said, let's just you know, spray it around in, in the Senate, um, they gave normal prairie, female prairie voles who had strong mate attachment to their mates extra oxytocin. Now, interestingly, you might think they'd be really attached, but biology doesn't work that way. Their level of attachment dropped way off. Moreover, they went into estrus. So an interesting thing is that we don't really know very much about what happens when you administer oxytocin. And I think we need to be very careful uh, about its administration. One area where the administration of oxytocin uh, has been considered is for subjects with uh, autism, autism spectrum disorder. There's a recent paper that came out of Angela Sirigu's uh, lab in France in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. She did get in 30 high-functioning autistics a significant effect in eye gaze and in cooperation after administration of oxytocin. But again, I would not say, and she certainly didn't say, that it was a huge effect. It was significant. Probably in autism, that's not the main difficulty, although we don't really know. Um, we do know that it isn't a deficiency of oxytocin receptors in autism. Uh, but we don't really know what else is going on. So that's, a, that's an area for study. Finally, I just want to mention uh, one place that did totally surprise me regarding uh, oxytocin. So the, it had been known that there is a kind of, roughly speaking, but not entirely true, inverse relationship between stress hormone, corticotrophin releasing factor, and oxytocin. One goes up and the other goes down. And so uh, someone asked the following question. Suppose you have a rat and it has a wound, and we know that under stressful conditions, wound healing is slow, slowed down. Suppose that even though rats aren't very social, you just put another rat in the cage next to them. What happens? And the answer was, wound healing speeds up significantly. So then uh, they administered oxytocin. Wound healing speeds up. And what they found was that two things, interleukin-6 of the immune system goes up. Tumor necrosis factor also goes up when you administer oxytocin. So then somebody had the interesting idea. Uh, and this is one of those sort of loose-ish experiments, but it's still really interesting. They had 38 couples, roughly the same age, sort of in their early 40s. And some of them, they, they, they took oxytocin levels via saliva uh, before the, the uh, games were to be played. And some of them were very affectionate and got on well and, you know, you know about that. And some of them were quite tense and they obviously didn't really like each other very much and they sort of glared and whatnot. So uh, the question was to test wound healing in this context. 
So they were all given suction wounds on their forearms and then tested over a period of about a month and a half just to see the progress of the wound healing. And of course, I'm telling you this story because the couples who were affectionate had higher levels of oxytocin in their saliva. We don't know which is the cause and which is the effect. <laughs> had higher levels of oxytocin in their saliva, and their wound healing was faster, significantly faster. Well, um, a lot more work has to be done before we know really uh, what that means, but it is a very, uh, a very interesting result. So I'm going to finish up with just a couple of slides that are going to be sort of touching on culture. In this slide, I'm showing boats as a niche change that may alter selective pressures. Um, and people who can handle boats and make boats and deal with boats may have a selective advantage uh, in this context. But notice also how different the boats are. This is a Haida boat that is suitable for the high, high seas and the huge waves off the coast of the Queen Charlottes. And these, of course, are kayaks of the Inuit uh, that are used in, in the Arctic. But notice that sort of like certain kinds of social practices, they are appropriate to their ecological niche and that they get developed and changed and modified and improved to suit that particular niche. And I think that there are analogies to be found then between artifactual inventions and developments and social practices and developments. Now, I haven't really said very much about rules, and I think time is running short. Um, and I'm not going to say very much, except that, and I think really I got this from Hume, who probably got it from Aristotle, that what's fundamental are these values that, in, in a way, apart from the sensory periphery, valenced coding is the way the brain does many things. It pays attention to things that it cares about, that, it's, that it needs, that are interesting, that are familiar, or maybe that are unfamiliar. But that coding seems valenced and everywhere. And to, to sort of devalence it, that is to separate fact and value the way we do in science, is a very sophisticated accomplishment. And it doesn't come easy, and we have, to, uh, we have to work at it. Rules, I think, then, are latecomers. They articulate certain kinds of social practices, maybe when we need to extend them to strangers, and we need to be sure uh, we all agree upon them. I was going to, in this part, just say that, of course, notoriously, as, as many philosophers know, uh, finding the basic exceptionless rules that apply under all circumstances to all people has really not proved uh, to be very fruitful. So um, because this is sort of Hume country, um, one has to ask, is it reasonable to infer what I ought to do from what is? 
And I think, I mean, Hume, of course, realized that you couldn't deduce a not from an is, that meaning that there was no valid argument that was going to take you from an, ought, from an is to an ought. But that doesn't mean you can't make a good, reasonable inference. And I think we do it all the time, and we do it all the time in the physical world. We have all kinds of little things that we realize we ought to do. My granddaughter comes running in. She's got bumps on her skin. They look like poison ivy. I apply an antihistamine. I don't have to have a fundamental exceptionless rule to which I refer. And I think the same is true uh, in the moral domain. So that good inferences are made about what we ought to do, drawing on all that valenced coding that is just part of the way that the brain does things. So the relation between what is and what we ought to do, it's a complex current of feelings, desires, memories, predictions, time pressures that interact in a constraint satisfaction process and land us in a minimum that works. Or if it doesn't, we soon find out and we end up doing something else. And with that, uh, thank you for your time, and I will close. Thank you very much for a very interesting, stimulating talk. Now, my impression is that most of what you said about mammals, like the uh, Mate, I mean, bonding behavior, pairwise, uh, parental caring behavior, and so on, playful behavior, even things like indexing in space and time are also true for birds. Now, is it really mammalian thing? Would it have a different, let's say, is it a parallel development in birds, or is it also oxytocin and maybe birds and mammals as opposed to reptiles? I mean, I wonder yeah. what you thought about that. Thank you so much for asking that question, because birds are particularly interesting. They show many of the same behaviors, and in many cases, almost all cases, of course, the, the young are highly dependent on the parents. Often, in, there are many more species of bird are long-term pair bonders, um, and so, so what about birds? Part of the reason I emphasize mammals is that we just don't know that much yet about birds. They do have um, a, a homologue of oxytocin called mesotocin, which is very similar. And it's, all, it's very, very likely, and Jim Goodson has some data now showing that mesotocin is extremely important for uh, parent offspring attachment but we just don't know as much about birds. And of course, as you know, um, their brains are quite different. So there, there is, thank heavens, a number of people who have done bird anatomy. And uh, they don't have a, a cortex in the same place that we do. They have a thing called the wolst, and it just happens to be sort of organized in a different place. And it took a long time, actually, for anatomists to find that. I mean, when I took neuroscience, people said, it's amazing, birds have no cortex, and look what they do. Uh, well, they do. It's just kind of uh, in a different, wrapped around other structures in a different way. And the wolst has the same sorts of connections to the thalamus, 
that our cortex has back and forth to all, to all parts of the thalamus. The other thing is, of course, we know much less about the evolution of the mammalian brain than we would like to because the intervening steps are all extinct. So we really don't know uh, what, what the intervening steps look like. However, there are some exceptions to the idea that reptiles just lay their eggs and run off on their merry way. Uh, one is alligators, who are quite sensitive to distress calls on the part of the young, and who will also guard the nest quite ferociously. There is also some evidence that some dinosaurs used to build nests in the same place, um, ostensibly for, for mutual safety. But, uh, of course, it, this seems to be really full-blown um, in, in mammals. But there are other aspects of the mammalian uh, <clears throat> evolution that, that we'd like to explore in birds. And, and one is that there was a big change in the vagus nerve. There was the development of the third arm of the vagus nerve. And most of us learned about the vagus nerve and thought, well, you know, you have to learn the cranial nerves and fine, now you can forget them. But the vagus nerve, of course, innervates all of the visceral organs. And one of the changes that seems to happen, this is a theory of uh, data actually from Steve Porge, is that the, the change in the vagus nerve allows for stillness without freezing. So if you're a reptile, you can freeze in fear and not move. But, and you can if you're a, a rat too. But you also need this different thing if you're a mammal, especially if you're a mammalian mom, which is you need to lie still for long periods of time while the young suckle. She spends vastly more time in, in that position than she does uh, running around. And so there had to be particular special changes uh, that involve, again, oxytocin and vasopressin and, um, and the um, vagus nerve. So there's, there's, there's a lot more to the story, but, and I'm so glad you asked that question. Back here. Uh, Richard. So, so as a neuroscientist, I'm, I'm comfortable with many aspects of your story in terms of the relationship between activity of neural networks and the endocrine system. The bit that I, I'm still a bit lost with is, is how you see the reward system in relation to the hypothesis you're developing with respect to morality. And what, what's at the back of my mind is a kind of folk, folk psychology notion that undertaking action for the purpose of reward, with the intention of reward, is not necessarily a moral action at all. Yeah. And that you know, if I was listening to you know, Bishop Hope's sermons or if I was listening to President Kennedy, you know, don't do what you're you know, for the country, the country speech and so on, right. then, then it's, it's actually doing it not for the reward, rather undertaking action because it's the right thing to do, rather than that you're undertaking it with the intention of securing reward. So I don't quite understand how the reward system fits right. into account. I think, I mean, that is, of course, a beautiful question. And, and it's a very tough question. The reward system in all mammals, but let's just think of primates, plays an absolutely crucial part in learning the social practices of the group. 
and learning what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And these and what you learn changes the emotional response when you have a particular intention. So that if you're a young chimpanzee, you don't know that you're not supposed to take food from the alpha male. So off you go, and he goes, hunk. That has a big effect on the reward system, and you don't do it again, and so forth. And over time, many of these responses become absolutely intuitive that uh, doing the fair thing, not bullying, uh, sharing, not stealing, and so forth, and now I'm talking, of course, about humans, it becomes intuitive. It becomes such a background part of the way we are um, that we think of these things as absolute values, or in some cases as coming from, uh, from spirits or from uh, a deity because they seem so, their rightness seems so powerful. And we feel guilty when we even think about, or at least Jimmy Carter said, if he sinned in his heart, he felt tremendously guilty. Well, I think that's quite common. And, but that seems to me a wholly reward-learning story that is built on this very fundamental need to belong, to be cared for, to care for, and to be approved of. But now the second part of your question, and that is, but isn't morality really not about anything in your long or short-term self-interest? And there I think the answer is more complex. At the level of species, or at least at the level of group, I think that the development of social practices governing such things as food sharing, reconciliation, stealing, lying, and so forth, at the level of the species, it's very clear what the evolutionary explanation is. At the level of the individual, it may not seem like that. Although even then, I, I think that many people respond to a call like a, a, a Kennedy's call or a call to war, not because uh, they're doing a calculation necessarily, but because they are motivated to do good for the group as a whole and that that's part of this extension of caring beyond self, beyond baby, to the wider group. But also it's a good thing that that happens, and Darwin made this observation, because if, if group... Uh, prosperity depends on group defense, then it should be the case that people feel very strongly about this. Now, having said that, of course, we note that there are huge individual differences. Some people are very, very easy to uh, get to respond with enthusiasm, that word that scared Adam Smith, uh, to respond enthusiastically to particular kinds of ideology. It can be very, very damaging, as we know, uh, when people are ideologically motivated in a way that uh, they don't care about their own interest or the self-interest uh, of others. So it's a, it, it's a messy thing, but I don't want to take the view that morality is essentially pure, that you must do it for purely duty's sake, um, and, and that duty has this kind of platonic 
um, aspect to it. I think ultimately it has to be grounded, as Aristotle thought, in the practical realities of getting on with life and, uh, and getting on with well-being. Could I ask you just a point about the, the behavior, um, you know, the ghastly behavior of um, chimpanzees to, so yeah. as it were, foreign chimps, described by Richard Wrangham and so on. Um, did you suggest there was some function in that, that in some way that was related um, to their sort of altruistic behavior to each other and so on? Oh, no, um, not necessarily, although it looks like there, there, it is a kind of bonding uh, event. Uh, it, it served their interests because they gained the territory of the chimpanzees that, that they killed. Um, but in, uh, I don't think Rangham wanted to make the point that there was an altruistic side to it. That was the, the bit that Sam Bowles introduced for humans. Now, that, what he has is a mathematical model showing that, yeah, this could be an explanation. But of course, a mathematical model is a mathematical model. And you tweak this, and you tweak that, and things turn out differently. So, so it's an interesting idea. But it's an idea that needs exploration because it, it certainly is the case that it's easy to motivate outgroup hostility, incredibly easy to motivate, as we learn with horror when psychologists have done these experiments like Phil Zimbardo. We have these wonderfully nice Stanford undergraduates all coming from nice middle-class homes. And, and you say, well, you're going to play the role of prisoners, and you're going to play the role of guards. And it got so ugly and so horrible after a few days that Zimbardo had to stop the experiment. I mean, these were nice, decent kids. So, so there's something there that, a, a story that has to be, has to be told. Um, but there, there is no doubt that in-group bonding, and this, uh, I'm sure Tim Bates would point this out, this is going to vary amongst individuals as to the, the, the strength of it. Uh, but it's, there is no doubt that in humans it plays a hugely strong uh, role. So, lady over here in the pink. Thank you for that. Following, um, it's obvious that over evolution, um, the mammalian brain and ultimately human brain has developed uh, neurological processes and hormone mechanisms which to cope and adapt to group situations. Would it not be getting quite obvious now that with the pace of technological change, the internet, the, the coping abilities, the divergence of group structures and the, um, the trade associations and trust must surely, I mean, our brains are finite structures. They have a limited wiring network and surely we must be getting to the stage where things are happening so fast our mental structures cannot cope, and would this be a reason for increased mental illness, distress, and um, uh, th this kind of society that we're in? And I then put forward the morality structure. You know, is there something somewhere where it's called the Bible or the Koran or the Torah, the Talmud, which seen this coming a long way, and basically mankind 
please slow down. Your brains are only a finite object. Well, it's true that it's only finite, but we don't know what its limits are. <laughs> I mean, we think the universe is finite, but unbounded. Uh, and uh, so we don't know what the limits are. And one of the things that is, is amazing, this is not just about humans, but, but about uh, many animals, is how adaptable and flexible and so forth they are. Um, the rhesus monkeys that manage to live in a fairly urban environment, for example, and birds that manage to live in a fairly urban, urban environment that, that clearly you know, they, they hadn't been selected uh, for. Um, so, so no, I, I wouldn't say that we're reaching our limits. As to the possibility that mental health is related to these things, mental health, of course, as you know, is a very complicated business, and um, it, to the best of my knowledge, the, um, the incidence of schizophrenia is approximately the same in, across cultures and to the, as well as we know across, uh, across time, so we don't really see an increase there. If there, is an if there is an increase in autism spectrum disorder, we don't have the slightest idea what the cause is. Um, so I wouldn't be too quick to, to say that, as, as they say in the song, we've gone about as far as we can go. Uh, we really don't know. And humans find, you know, even in, in a big world where you can be connected with all kinds of people on the internet, there is a fairly small group of people with whom you are close. So uh, that aspect of it may not be significantly different from how it was, say, 50 years ago. It's obvious that uh, there's a great deal of interest. Uh, can I invite you to uh, go downstairs uh, immediately after the lecture in just a moment? There is an um, opportunity for some drink. Uh, and perhaps, if you are very, very um, lucky, an opportunity maybe to sure. buttonhole um, Professor Churchland with, uh, with, a, with a question there as well. Uh, but will you join me in thanking her for what has obviously been a very stimulating lecture? This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.